You know, really, we've had, you know, this church actually launched like four years ago and, um, you know, with a handful of people, like qu like quite literally. And um, we just thank the Lord for what he's done. And uh, we have a beautiful children's ministry in junior high and high school, all these things that are happening. And, um, and so we just thank God. And I'm glad that you are here. Revelation chapter 1, I want to draw your attention immediately to the outline that is identified for us in verse 19 of Revelation chapter 1, when the Lord says to John, write the things which you have seen, which is actually chapter 1, write the things which are, which is actually chapters 2 and 3, that, that consists of seven messages that Jesus gave, customized messages to seven churches 2,000 years ago. Every one of them ends with, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Holy Spirit says. So it was written to churches 2,000 years ago, but to every believer who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the message is to the seven churches. And then notice, he says, and the things which will take place. What's the next word, you guys? After this... Okay, and that begins chapter 4 to the end of the book. So we are now in chapter 2. We're in the second portion of the book. So we're really cooking, aren't we? We're in the second portion. Well, the first portion was actually, you know, the first chapter. We are in the second portion of the book. There's a reason why I have a menorah up here, because Jesus is giving seven messages to seven churches, and the churches are identified as candlesticks. And Jesus is actually walking in the midst of the church. In fact, if you look in chapter 1, look at chapter 1, verse 12. I just remind you, I turned and saw the voice spoke with me. Having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. It's a beautiful picture there. I mean, seven could make up a menorah. Is this implicit here? It's not explicit. He's not saying, okay, I'm going to write seven messages of seven churches, the menorah, the light of the world, but it is implied. I believe, actually, it's a picture of the menorah. So this is like the menorah, seven branches. This provided light in the holy place in the temple so that the priest could serve God. And um, Jesus said, we are the light of the world, and we, the church, is the temple of God. That is the light of the world. So when I think of the seven uh, messages to the seven churches that we're going to be studying tonight, I think of our precious Lord walking in the midst of the golden lampstands. Are you guys with me on this? And so what he's doing is he's acutely aware of what's going on. It's so beautiful, like, to think that our Lord is here in our midst makes you just want to drop to your face, right? And we always carry in our heart that beautiful awe of his presence. In fact, that marked the early church. And one of the earmarks was that they were consciously aware of his active presence. He's very aware. And as we mentioned last week, and sorry I wasn't here, I put it on video, and I don't plan to put uh, messages on videos in the future. I'll just let you know. Um, but, you know, we, we see that there's a pattern. Jesus introduces himself. In fact, let me just remind you quickly, look at verse 1 of chapter 2. He says to the angel, the church of Ephesus, he says, these things says he, this is Jesus, 
who holds the seven stars, which are the angels, in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Ah, I see picture of menorah. And then in verse 2, he says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you've tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and found them liars. You've persevered, you have patience, have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. All these wonderful things. And then in verse 4, it changes little direction. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You've left your first love. It's not that you have lost it. You have left it. It can be regained. And so he gives really the prescription for personal revival. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, course correct. Do your first works or else I will come to you quickly. Remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So it's like, okay, menorah, lampstands. I'm going to, listen, you're going to lose your witness. You're going to lose like the impact in your generation unless you return to your first love. Now, here's what we're going to do tonight. We're, we're going to study quite a few of these uh, messages, but we're going to do so in a little different way. Um, you know, there's explicit message, which is like, okay, study each message, you know, what's it in context, and there's different cities, and, and, and that's, that's really the most important. But Bible students believe actually that these seven messages could give us insight to a panoramic view of church history. So let's just look up here for a second. Let's just say, let's just, okay, so you're, you're reading from left to right, right? So this is Ephesus, this is Smyrna, this is Pergamos, this is uh, Thyatira, this is Sardis, this is Philadelphia, this is Laodicea. Okay, so like some Bible students, and we're actually going to address a little bit of this because I see earmarks in these messages that address specific time periods in church history. It's not explicit, so we want to be careful in a way, but it is implicit, and I'll explain in just a little bit. So Ephesus marks, well, the first century church, the ground floor of the Jesus movement. It's like they're committed to the Word of God, apostolic authority, reject those false apostles, need to return to first love to retain their witness and their generation. Watch this. Next church, Smyrna. Well, you have radical persecution taking place from first century to 300 AD before Constantine becomes the Roman emperor. And Smyrna comes from the root word myrrh, which is the perfume extracted from a bush-like tree when it's crushed. And it's like, interestingly, and we'll talk about this a little in depth, actually, Smyrna, because it's so important that we do, but look, some see Smyrna as the persecuted church. Hundreds of thousands of our fellow brothers and sisters 2,000 years ago who professed Jesus rather than bow to the state. It's like God ordained government, but government is not God. So it's like if Government calls you to defy conscience and God's commandment to Gehenna with it, you know? So there's, a, there's another word for that, but we won't talk about it. So it's like, no, no. It's like we're going to learn in just a little bit. Our brothers and sisters faced whether they're going to give complete allegiance to the state or is it Jesus? I mean, think about what Paul wrote in Romans. I mean, he, he knows the dynamics that are stirring even as he's writing it. 
If you confess Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you shall be saved. It's like, hey, are you going to confess Caesar is Lord or Jesus? We'll talk about it. So you have persecuted church. Watch, Pergamus, Pergamus represents the compromised church. You're talking about the marrying of paganism into the church. This is the beginning of the roots of Catholicism or the church of Rome. Okay, and then you have the idolatrous church from 500 to 1500 where the church is institutionalized, where the, where the pope is the president, where, there's, where it's like, you know, the church of Rome is a nation, all kinds of, there's some good, but there's a lot of corruption during that time. Then you have Sardis, which speaks of the escaping one, the, the protest moment, movement, I should say, or the Protestant movement the protest movement. And then you have Philadelphia, which is like 1700 to 1900, I hope today too. The door that uh, is, op- is opened by Jesus to proclaim the gospel is a big missionary movement, keeping the word of God. Laodicea is a materialistic church. We don't want to be a part of that. Can I hear a big amen to that? It's like Jesus said, I'd rather have you hot, cold, but if you're lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. So, we're going to do an interesting study, and, and I, I think you're going to really enjoy it. We're going to dive down in depth in some of the messages, and then others we're going to survey. I, I don't know if we're going to be able to finish it all. I don't think so. As I told you, this message is going to be a little bit like how I eat, like to eat chocolate, which is to put a lot in my mouth, okay? And that's how we're going to do it, actually. Look at verse 8, to the angel of the church in Smyrna. You're talking about a city in modern Turkey, some 50 miles from Ephesus. It was an extraordinarily beautiful city. Alexander the Great said this city should be replicated throughout the world. It was like this model city. I remember one time we built a church and I had a friend say, hey, could we have, could we have the drawings of this church? Could we just like to replicate it? He loved this city. Uh, yet, there was something underneath brewing in the city. In 195 BC, before the days of the empire, Smyrna had built a temple to the goddess of Rome. And the temple would prove to lay the groundwork of something far worse in the future. So in AD 23, when the Roman Empire was considering where to erect, a temple in honor of the emperor of Tiberius, like to worship him, Smyrna was the ideal location. It it already had in its blood, in its DNA, this inordinate esteem of the empire. So now we're just going to like build a a statue and, and a dedication to the emperor himself. Smyrna would become ground zero. For inordinate adoration of the emperor, leading to the worship of the emperor as God. And so it was setting a course that ended up, you know, colliding with those who followed Jesus as king. Remember, John has been arrested. How many of you remember that? He's on the island of Patmos. We have extra biblical works that he was the pastor of Ephesus. So now at 90 years of age, they've tried to kill him, boil him in oil. That's what extra biblical works. Say, for some reason, it didn't work. They exile him to Patmos. He's in his 90s. 
He's given revelation. And I believe in principle, pastors kind of need to embody, you know, seeing big picture. Every Christian does. We understand prophecy. It's, it's just interesting to me. It's like John is exiled, and he's given revelation, which gives big picture, gives discernment to the times, gives specific you know, messages from Jesus to the churches. He had such a heart for all of these churches. All of these churches came out of Ephesus. It was in Smyrna. Many of you know this story. We're talking 50 years after the apostle John's death. He had discipled a man by the name of Polycarp. And uh, he was the pastor of Smyrna. And in 153 AD, in a satanic frenzy at the Olympia Sporting the crowd cried, death to infidels and death to Polycarp. And they grabbed our brother and dragged him into the sporting event. And one of the soldiers, they play the, play the man, old, old man, and just confess Caesar is Lord. And he said, you tempt me with the fire that burns for a few hours, but you're in danger of a fire that burns for eternity. He refused to bow. So can I hear an amen to that, right? And of course, they put him to death. But look at verse 8, because the way Jesus introduces himself to Smyrna is very insightful. Because it not only reveals who he is, but it brings application to encourage them. Again, this is a church that was experiencing terrible persecution. So he says, these things says, the Lord is speaking, the first and the last who was dead and came to life. First, last, Alpha and Omega, the eternal one who made himself known, who conquered the grave. I mean, Jesus foretold he would resurrect. In essence, the Bible teaches no resurrection, no faith, no Christianity. Thomas, in hearing of the resurrection, uh, he, he really expressed the Jewish sentiment. I'm not going to buy into this unless I can handle the body of Jesus. So to a Hebraic mind, resurrection was not a ghost. It wasn't an idea. It, it wasn't abstract. It had to be bodily. They believed in a bodily resurrection. So he's like, I, I, you know, you guys have touched him. Okay, hey, listen. I'm not going to believe until I literally touch him. And of course, the Lord appeared to him. And it was then he said, my Lord and my God. It's like, whoa. I mean, it's almost like, you know, he's identifying, well, he is. Jesus is the eternal one. You know, when the Lord delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt, he introduced himself, I'm, I am the Lord to be your God. So for Thomas, this Jewish man, to say, you're, you're, you're my Lord and my God. It's like it just doesn't get bigger than that and more beautiful. And notice in verse 9, he said, I know your works. I know your works. The Lord knows us. He's evaluating the church. He identifies tribulation, that they had been experiencing tribulation. And of course, the Lord is very upfront with all of us that we are going to experience tribulation, hardship in life. And one of the reasons is, is because we live in a broken world. So you, we're going to experience opposition. In addition to that, hey, listen, there's someone who really hates you, you know, and that's the devil, right? Now, he's been conquered, 
But man, there is spiritual warfare. No doubt about it. They were experiencing tribulation. He identifies poverty here. Actually, the Greek word is abject poverty. It's hard for us to relate to. I mean, like extreme poverty. Someone said, if you woke up this morning with more health than illness, then you're more blessed than a million who will not live throughout this week. I mean, if, if you've never experienced the danger of a battle, or loneliness, or in prison, men, the agony of torture, the pangs of starvation, you're ahead of 500 million people in the world. If you can attend a church meeting without fear of harassment, arrest, torture, or death, then you're more blessed than 3 billion people in the world. If you have money in the bank, cash in your wallet, spare change in a dish someplace, you are among the top 8% of the world's wealthy. These are our brothers and sisters experiencing a major squeeze, myrrh, you know, crushed, perfume. He says, I know your works, tribulation, and poverty, but you're rich. You're rich. Like yesterday was my son's first, firstborn son's birthday. And so when I was writing him a gram, I'm just thinking of this right now, but I'm just thinking, hey, man. I mean, I was there when you were born. I mean, I was in awe. I did, I, the first thing that came out of my mouth, I'm getting really personal here. The first thing that came out, I go, it's a baby. I mean, I was just like, I don't know. I, I just couldn't believe it. And then, well, I could believe it, but I was just in awe. And, um, Oh, he was 9'3", I'm walking down, you know, the nurses, they're very conservative at that, that time. Like, don't touch him, don't touch him. And, um, you know, just telling everybody, this is my son, you know, called him Greg down. And 9'3", uh, oh, I was, I was just, oh, I, was, I get chills thinking about it. So I've seen his life, he's 36 now. And I just told him, you're a rich man. God has blessed you with a beautiful bride. You've got fantastic sons three grandsons. If you want to have more children, it's fine with me. And I was saying, so you are a rich man, relationally rich, in every way rich. I just think he says, hey, you know what? Tribulation, poverty, you're rich. Rich. It's like, um, why would he say such a thing? Well, I'll tell you one of the reasons I'm convinced is because we learn very little of significance in life outside of adversity and pain. It's true. Um, I mean, the world opens up to you when you experience suffering. You say, what do you mean the world up, opens up to you? Well, for one, you become, become more aware of, of others and more sensitive to their suffering. Would you not agree with that? It's true. Even like our eyes open even to the Lord himself understanding the kind of adversity that he went through. He was a man of sorrows. And the thing was, he was present in his pain. He was honest. He was transparent. It's important because when we, we face adversity, we're going to do two, two, one of two things. We're either going to retreat and harden and try to, and try to control our life or... Or, or we're going to continue to be sensitive and open and, and, and experience it and be transparent even in our pain to our Heavenly Father. I mean, I just think of Jesus coming down into Jerusalem, you know, 
just convulsing, actually, because he saw a generation that was not going to embrace him as Lord and Savior, and he knew the results of it. It would bring judgment to Jerusalem, but he was present in his pain. And, um, you know, even praying, Lord, I, I pray that if there's any other way that this cup could pass, any other path to salvation, the, the redemption of man, I mean, I'm open to it. That cup was the redemption cup, no doubt of the Passover Seder, he was going to bear the sin of the world. He was treated as if he committed every stinking sin in human history. Look, there's only two churches out of seven that do not receive any constructive criticism. And this is one. It's the church that experienced intense persecution, tribulation, and a church that was experiencing abject poverty, but they were rich. I mean, if you look back in church history, the church persecuted is the church pure, and the church pure is the church powerful. I just remember John MacArthur saying years ago, I'm like a young pastor hearing him say this, I'm praying for persecution, for adversity to the church in America because I, I know that it will bring purity, and a greater dependence upon the Lord. And that's kind of, I, I, don't quote me on it, but that was kind of the idea. You don't want to be the church of Laodicea, we'll read about it in just a little bit, who's materially wealthy, but they are poor, Jesus says. To Smyrna, he says, major tribulation, abject poverty, but you are rich. Look at verse 9, and I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Synagogue of Satan? It was a playoff, actually, of the sign above the synagogue in Smyrna that read, Synagogue of the Lord. But what Jesus is saying, no, actually, you know, you are descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and, and you are not rightly aligned with the Lord God of Israel and the Messiah of Israel. He's certainly not saying synagogues are satanic or something. He's, he's criticizing the synagogue in, in Smyrna. Interesting, we'll get to this a little bit later, but Philadelphia, he talks about in Philadelphia, he says, I have the key of David, and I open and shut the doors. The background of Philadelphia was in synagogues, they were not allowing Jewish believers in Yeshua, Jesus, to come into the synagogue. Are you guys with me on this? And it was like, Jesus said, <laughs> um, I have the total authority and domain of David. I'm the king of Jerusalem. I'm the king of the kingdom. I'm the one that opens and shuts. And it's like, and I'm the way, the truth, and the life, right? So if you're right with me, you're right. So these are some of the dynamics that are being addressed. And look at verse 10. He says, do not fear. Jesus is telling Smyrna not to fear. Not because there were not real issues of concern, because there were. But because he sees the whole picture, he knows their suffering would be temporal, and he knows that death is not the end. I mean, Jesus said, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. 
Listen, as believers, we don't fear death, and we should not allow controversy or peer pressure, certainly, to control us from doing what is right and standing for what is right to the glory of God. Can I hear a big amen to that? Even if, even if we're facing death. It's not like I don't, I don't have a death wish. I mean, I, I, don't, I would love to be here. I'd love to walk my daughters down the aisles. I'd love to be with my grandchildren, but I, I don't fear death. And he says here, our precious Lord, look, he, he's saying in verse 10, any of those things which you're about to suffer, indeed the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Church of Smyrna, persecuted, right? Crushed, but sweet, but rich. You know, some Bible students say here like the 10 days, um, maybe speaking of a, of a period of time actually, where you have 10 successive emperors. I mean, this is not explicit, but under Nero in 54, persecution. Next, uh, uh, Emperor Domitian, 81, persecution. Trajan, uh, Hadrian, Severus, Maximin, Decius, Valerian, uh, Ariolan, uh, uh, Diocletian in 80, 20, uh, 284, excuse me. I mean, you had 10 successive emperors who were persecuting our brothers and sisters whose allegiance was to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Here's the thing. The truth is, this type of uh, opposition that the state will embody is something that is prophesied in Scripture. And uh, we know that, and we're going to talk about it in our study in Revelation, but in the last three and a half years prior to the return of Jesus, so now you're in the heart of the tribulation, and it's intense, I mean, look, you have this Antichrist who's basically saying, if you don't buy into ideology and you don't take the mark of the beast, you can't buy or sell. You're not going to be able to participate in the economy, in the world. So we're going to use kind of economic pressure to, to force people to buy into ideology. And not to be hyperbolic, but don't tell me you don't see little shadows of that today. That's just a flat-out fact. And we have a responsibility. Listen, my brothers and sisters, we are to read, hear, and keep this. And actually the word keep means to watch. So we're to study and keep watchful. We're to be discerning of the times in which we live. Can I hear a big amen to that? And it's just interesting to me, it's like you get a lot of opposition and persecution coming to Israel, which will be one of the public number one, number one enemies of the Antichrist and the church. The church, followers of Jesus, are the most persecuted religion on planet Earth. Flat out. And it's going to intensify. And look, how much will we see of it? Well, I don't know. But it's like, I know this. Look at verse 10. He says, be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. Be faithful unto death, I'll give you the crown of life. I say that's a pretty good trade-off right there. I mean, I, was, I read this today and I was thinking about it. I think, praise God. It's like, you know, hey, look, are we going to follow Jesus? Like, no matter what, of course we are. We follow him because he's true. We, we love him because he made us and created us, revealed himself to us, gave his life for us, and dwells us, and because there is such a thing as truth. Otherwise, we're going to become puppets to peer pressure. Puppets to demonic influence. It's true. But he's just saying, be faithful 
until death, I will give you a crown. I will give you a crown. And I, I'll be frank with you this morning. I was just musing on this and I, oh Lord, I, I would love for you to put a crown on my head. It's not a crown like of a king. It's a crown. It's a kind of wreath that says you finished the race faithfully. We're going to see in, in chapter 4 and 5, we actually take off our crowns, or the elders do, and they throw, he throw them at the feet of Jesus because only he is worthy. Can I hear an amen to that? It's like, I would love to do that. I would love, love to be a part of that. Just like, okay, I mean, we all finished well. The Lord puts a crown on our head, and then we're like, in adoration, take them off and like, you know, be careful how you throw it. But you I mean, just like, you know, just get it on the feet, but give it to him. That's a beautiful thing. Amen to that? Yeah. I love it. Amen. The Bible speaks of crowns in lots of different ways. Crown of glory, crown of life, crown of righteousness. But the Lord wants to put on your head a crown that identifies you are a person who changed your mind to follow the king, a genuine worshiper, lived for the Lord's approval. Finish the race. And the key is to keep our eyes on Jesus who kept his eyes on the Heavenly Father and never gave up because our Father is only, only good. Hey, we come to Pergamos. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12 through 17 represents the compromising church, the ground floor of a major transition in history. Now we're looking at this from a bird's eye perspective. Uh, obviously, 2,000 years ago, there's an ecclesia assembly there. Let's read here in verse 12 to the angel of the church in Pergamos. Write these things, says he, who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now that's a little different intro, isn't it? I mean, in Ephesus, he's like talking about, I hold the stars and I'm walking amidst the church. In Smyrna, he says, I'm the first in lap, died and raised from the dead. This has a totally different tone to it. I mean, this unfortunately speaks of a, a compromising church, actually. In verse 13, Jesus identifies where Satan's throne is. We know we know that Pergamos became the first city to dedicate a temple to Caesar. There were two camps that coalesced. Verse 13, one, a faithful remnant represented by Antipas, which means against all. And the other in verse 13, which attempted to coexist actually with the world, he says, I have a few things against you, not just one. He said that to Ephesus. I got a few things against you. Verse 14, you've allowed Balaam. He mentions Balaam. Balaam, I mean, in history is the prophet of compromise. We don't have time to get into it, but you've allowed compromise, sexual compromise. If you jump down to verse 15, I'm going to more survey this. Many see the Nicolaitans referring to leadership. Nico means rule. Laity, laitans or laity, may the rule over the laity. And if we look back in church history, the ultimate fruition of this would be kind of the origins of the Catholic Church, institutionalizing 
Christianity. Now I'm, 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 I'm transitioning here. We look back in history, unfortunately, you have Christendom becoming institutionalized, where it's like, man, the, the Pope, like, why? He, he, what, is he the head of the church? I mean, it, whatever he says goes. Um, is he above Scripture? Of course not, right? But Nicolaitans, I mean, it carries the idea potentially of rule over the people. We're going to talk about this in a little bit. But man, when, at the Protestant Reformation, you have Martin Luther who says, oh, wait a second, um, the Pope is not the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. And we got to restore, actually, the priesthood to every human being. Which is like, what does that even mean? Oh, we all have access to the Lord. We all serve the Lord. Every individual is important to the church family. There's no, like, hierarchy in the church whatsoever in some institutionalized manner. And by the way, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Pergamus represents the early stages of the Church of Rome. And th this is no slam. I'm not trying to, like, slam Catholics or anything. I don't even need to say this. But, or, or Catholicism. Just stating facts, okay? I mean, you have Will Durant, great historian, Bibi Netanyahu, loves him. He said, paganism survived in the form of ancient rites and an indulgent church. An intimate and trustful worship of saints replaced the cult of pagan gods. Statues of Isis and Horus were renamed Mary and Jesus. The Roman Lyceria and the Feast of Purification of Isis became the Feast of the Nativity. The Saturnalia was replaced by Christmas celebration. The ancient festival of the dead of All Souls Day rededicated to Christian heroes. Incense, lights, flowers, processions, vestments, hymns, which had pleased the people in older cults, were domesticated and cleansed in the ritual of the church Soon people and priests would use the sign of a cross as a magic incantation to expel or drive away demons. So you, there was a major transition in 325 or, or thereabout when Constantine became the state, or the emperor, excuse me, and made Christianity the state-supported religion of the Roman Empire. At that time, you had like a lot of priests out of a job. And it's like, and the... The, the, the empire was supporting paganism, supporting it financially. So now you have this mix, this co-marrying between paganism and the church. Are you guys with me on this? This explains some of the crazy traditions that has just existed. And, you know, this is something that we do at our church all the time is, and we'll talk about this, I think, a little bit later on, but, I mean, you know, Constantine uprooted Christianity from its roots. You know, he outlawed the celebration of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in the context which took place. You're never to celebrate Jesus in relation to Passover, ever. That's why you have the separation of sometimes, you know, where the West is celebrating Easter, and it's like on a totally different date than our Jewish friends are celebrating Passover. You guys with me on that? That should never have been. I mean, absolutely never have been. That's grotesque. It's an offense to Jesus. And I think we can course correct it to our kids and grandkids. So, and I think we are. I think, I, think, I think we're doing that at our church, to be frank. We're making some progress, which is 
We bring, we bring communion in its context, its intended context that the Lord has, has one, wants us to. If you look at verse 16, he says, Repent, or else I will come to you quickly. I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So again, I mean, this is a compromising church, right? There's hope. He who has an ear to hear, verse 17, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. I will give him a white stone on the stone of name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Uh, compromising church, but hey, listen, there are those who are faithful, and Antipas is certainly one of them, and, um, and there's others, so long as you hear, hearing is the key to seeing. Thyatira, a lot here, represents major shift in Christendom from like 300 to the 1500s. Again, kind of doing a little different study tonight, right? Christianity is becoming institutionalized, the church became actually a nation. He says in verse 18, I'm talking about like with the Catholic Church. It says, The angel of the church in Thyatira write these things, says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, his feet like fine brass. That's intense tone too. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Because you allow that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality, eat things sacrificed to idols, and I have given her time to repent of her sexual immorality. She did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her in a great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts, and I will give to each one according to his works. A lot there. And I actually want to come back to this, uh, Lord willing, next week. But I, I want us to continue with this like overview um, you know, what began with Constantine, the marrying of paganism into the church and a bunch of compromise, I mean, became institutionalized. So from 300 to 1500, man, unfortunately, it was an ignorant time in church history. It was a dark time in church history. I mean, you have, for example, as I mentioned, the roots of the church ripped up, you know, by Constantine, um, in 593 A.D., Pope Gregory, I, I don't know him personally, and uh, I'm Greg, and uh, proposed the doctrine of purgatory, a place where the spirits of the dead must suffer for final purging of sin, and a teaching that undermines really the sufficiency of the work of Jesus because he paid it all for us and we can have security. Our last breath on planet Earth will be our first in heaven. Can I hear a big amen to that? But what happened is, it's like, you know, you know, he's very, very firm here about immorality and things. I mean, you have, during this time, where you have the promotion of purgatory, you have the church selling like kind of these sin certificates. You have them 
You have, you have this teaching of indulgences. So in other words, like they, the church might knock on your door. This is not fun to talk about, but might knock on your door and say, hey, look, Uncle Charlie, you know, he died a couple years ago and he was a Catholic, but he's still in purgatory. So you can help him so long as you give some money to the church, right? As Dave Hunt said, Christianity was reduced to the size of one's pocketbook. For the meek and the poor, purgatory was therefore a, a far greater terror than those who could afford to sin on a grander scale. Only too happy to believe the church's false promises, sinners lined up to buy indulgences and thus their way into heaven. It was pure business and it boomed. And soon the truth, the authority of the word of God became the church of Rome's greatest enemy. One Catholic historian said the view of the church had been that every departure from the teachings of the church must be punished with death and the most cruel of deaths by fire. Both the initiation and carrying out of this must be ascribed to the popes alone who compelled bishops and priests to condemn heretics to torture, confiscation of their goods, imprisonment, death, enforcement of the execution of the sentence on the civil authorities under pain of execution. Pope Nicholas 858, 867 instructed the king of Bulgaria, and I'm just going to quote, I glorify you for having maintained your authority by putting to death those wandering sheep who refuse to enter the fold and congratulate you upon having opened the kingdom of heaven to the people submitted to your rule. A king need not fear to command massacres when these will retain his subjects in obedience or cause them to submit to the faith of Christ and God will reward him in this world and in eternal life for these murderers. I mean, hey, aren't you glad you came tonight to hear all of this? I mean, this is not the greatest in church history, greatest time, but we start to see a change here. So I got good news because we got this protest movement can I hear an amen to that, right? Protest movement. And, and listen, we're, I, I, I'm looking at time and we've, oh my goodness gracious. Oh, I think we're going to have to come back next week and, and work on But listen, if you notice chapter 3, l- let's read a little bit about Sardis. Um, and he says, these things says he who has the seven spirits of God. We're going to de- go a deep dive. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit actually. Seven stars are the angels. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you're dead. A name that you're alive, but you're dead. Be watchful. Strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works complete before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come to you as a thief and you'll not know what hour I will come to you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments and shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. In other words, there's security. There's security in Christ. There's security. I will not blot his name out. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. A lot there, but look. Some see Sardis as the protest movement. Like what were they protesting? John Wycliffe, called the Morning Star of the Reformation, began 
the public outcry that it was not the Pope that was the head of the church, it was Jesus Christ. The Catholic Church condemned Wycliffe to death. Um, well, that was John, yeah, Wycliffe to death, but he escaped. Then there was John Huss, who questioned the church's teaching on salvation. You know, Sunday morning we'll be in Romans 16, and Paul writes, mark those who cause division among you, who teach things contrary to what you have learned. He doesn't say, like, put them to death, but he's like, mark them, mark them. You know, God hates division. And so it's like, okay, well, in the context of Romans, it's clear that we are justified by the blood of Jesus. It is a gift that we receive by grace. Or Ephesians 2.8, we are saved by, can someone tell me, grace through faith. Sometimes you'll hear people say, we're saved by faith, and that's not accurate. We are saved by grace through faith. In other words, like a gift that Jesus purchased on the cross for us, and we receive it. We believe it. We receive it. The conduit of receiving this gift of all that he's accomplished for us is faith. Can I hear a big amen to that? You have, and I won't spend a lot of time with it, but Catholic soteriology is unique. I don't, I don't believe it's biblical. So Catholic soteriology, that's a big idea. Soteriology means the study of salvation. Essentially is you need to be faithful to the seven sacraments in the Catholic Church. How many of you grew up Catholic out of curiosity? Well, God bless you. And I'm, hey, listen, I'm glad we're studying the Bible. Okay, many have grown up Catholic. But the point is, is that you, you, need to, you need to be faithful to the seven sacraments. So you need to be baptized in the church, penance, holy orders, extreme unction, holy Eucharist. In fact, true Catholic doctrine is, I hate to say it, but there's no legit communion outside the Church of Rome. It's like Protestants are like <laughs> really wackos, to be honest with you. It's not, it's not, even, it's not even legit to them. So the point is, it's like you need to be married in the church, you need to communion in the church, you need to attend the church. And this is, by, this is the way you receive grace. And if you were not faithful to att attend the church and these seven, these seven sacraments, then um, you have no, well, it's, it's hard to find Catholics who have any confidence that when they die, they go to heaven. Because it's like a performance-based reality. So, our brothers, man, and thank God for the protest movement, they're like, no, it's by grace through faith alone. It's, it's not a performance-based reality, and salvation is not, listen, through the church, i.e. an institution, it's like having right relationship with Jesus Christ. The straw that broke the camel's back in, in, the, in the protest movement came through Martin Luther. Johann Tetzel had been hired by the church to roam the countryside selling indulgences. Sin, these are like sin certificates. So without we're getting really graphic, it's like, okay, so he knocks on your door and he's like, hey, you know, um, I don't know, give five bucks and you can lie, okay? Can you give 25 bucks and you can get drunk t tonight? You know, I don't want to keep talking about it. You know, 50 bucks in, in, in sexual immorality stuff. And um, so, and, and it's a way, of course, to support the church. Well, Luther, you know, saw this. He saw the corruption. 
It ended up leading to writing his 95 Thesis, condemning many practices of the church. And he called the church to do at least three things. One, it must remove the distinction between clergy and laity and restore the Christian his rightful priesthood. Can I hear an amen to that? It must acknowledge every Christian's right to interpret the scriptures according to his conscience. And number three, it must restore the final authority which the church had so long usurped. Eventually, Europe was divided between Catholic and Protestant. Initially, Luther vowed he would never use force to protect the growing truth, but he, he broke his vow. It's like if you read Sardis there, it's implicit, not explicit. You know, you have a name that you live, but it's like questionable. You have little strength. I have not found your works perfect and so forth. And, um, and the Protestant movement, man, it started out with a bang. I mean, you have Luther who's actually borrowing melodies from bar songs and then, you know, just kind of inserting some fantastic lyrics to them. I mean, for example, you know, all, I mean, this, I, I can hear David Hawking singing this. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Right? Okay. Help me here. Please help me. Okay. Uh, fall break from the royal diadem and crown him. Lord, uh, thank you for rescuing me. Thank you so much. Yeah, well, that was a melody from some, I don't know, Beatle tune of the day, right? And he just put it to some fantastic lyrics. Church of Philadelphia, I'm looking at 15 minutes here. Can you give me five more minutes? Five more minutes. Oh, Church of Philadelphia. Just give me five more minutes. To the angel of the Church of Philadelphia, Philly, was the youngest of the seven cities. It was an outpost to spread Greek culture. Obviously, its name, Philadelphia, um, you know, speaks of brotherly love. It's all, about, it's all about love, love for God, love for each other, the fruit of the Spirit, and so forth. But in verse 7, he says, These things says he who is holy. And we were singing about the Lord's holiness. Praise God. Hebrew term holy is Kodesh. The Greek is Hagios, both of which means to be set apart. So when we say holiness, we mean God is not like us, not in any way he's different. We might say he's awesome, he's unbelievable, he's unfathomable, and the reality is that he's more righteous and pure and powerful than we could ever conceive. He is indescribable. He's indescribable. And uh, it says here in verse 7, these things says he who is holy, and Jesus is identifying himself in true. There's two Greek words for true. One is like true versus false. The other is like whether something's genuine or not. Jesus is saying he is real, he is genuine, he is true in all who he is. He's the real God, he's the real man. And in verse 7, he says, He who has the key of David, I love this. He who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I mean, one person penned, a key indicates control or authority. Therefore, having the key of David would give one control of David's domain. As I mentioned earlier, Jerusalem, city of David, the kingdom of Israel. The fact that Jesus holds this key, shows he's the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, the ruler of Jerusalem, Lord 
of the kingdom of heaven. How many remember like blind, Mar- Bar- Bar- blind Bartimaeus when Jesus was making his way up to Jerusalem? He said, Son of David, have mercy on me. Stop Jesus in his tracks. Jesus is the descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through the line of David. He's the promised son of David. It's like you even understand Jesus, you need to understand David in a lot of ways. But he is the one who established the kingdom of David forever and ever and ever and ever. And he says in verse 8, I know your works. I've set before you an open door. No one can shut it. For you have little strength. You've kept my word and not denied my name. Um, You know, some see the church of Philly beginning in like 1700 to 1900, major missional work during that time, an open door to bring the gospel to the world. Very few doors were shut to the gospel at that time. So there was great evangelistic opportunity. He mentions reliance on God. He's commending them faithfulness to the word of God. The church of Philly is committed to the word. We want to be committed to the word here. Can I hear a big amen to that? You know, you have Barnhouse who says the church of Philadelphia is commended for keeping the word of the Lord and not denying his name. Success in Christian work is not to be measured by any other standard of achievement. We're committed to the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help us God. So help us God. Real quick, look at verse 9. I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to those that I have, that, that I have, that I have loved you. So in other words, I'm going to esteem you. Uh, those who are once in opposition are going to recognize I loved you. Just real quick, from 1700 to 1900, major missional movement. In addition to that, you have a major, major movement of Jewish friends coming to Jesus Christ um, during this time. Jewish missions uh, first began in Germany, took root in England, finally came to the fruition of the United States. And um, so many of those lost in the Holocaust were our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. They were messianics. They were Jews who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. This picture of like, hey, you know, those are the synagogue of Satan. They're going to come. They're going to recognize I have loved you. Just speaks of the fact that there is a calling for us to live a life that we would provoke our Jewish friends to jealousy. That's Romans 11, 11. We have a responsibility. And, you know, I'm thinking of my friend, Dr. Michael Brown, who commented to me on a text one day, simply saying, you know, because he was being persecuted. He's a, Jew, he's a Jewish believer in Jesus. He was experiencing intense opposition when he went to Israel. And I'm not going I, I, you know, to quote him, but he was just basically saying, hey, listen, that's just part of it. That's part of it as being a Jewish believer. But it's like, you know, one day the Lord will honor us. And this is what I, I believe in principle the Lord is saying. Listen, I thank you so much. I can't believe it's 56 minutes Bible study. Let's all stand at this time. I, I, I want to end with a, with a prayer and a blessing. And I want to release you. I want to keep my messages 
And I always say this, God help me. I want to keep it around 45 minutes, so I just, I don't want to wear you out. Good job for being here, but we are ending at 7.51. Can I hear an amen to that? Right, so you can get home. But listen, let's, let's just pray, Lord. But we, we learned a lot. I mean, we learned the good, the bad, the ugly. And we, we, also, we also learned how important it is to keep hearing. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And that the way forward is really the way back. You know, we want to be like Ephesus. We want to be like Philly. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of com- commendation of the churches, but we want to be like those churches. Help us to keep your word faithfully. Help us to seize the open doors that work in our family, to step through them, to be courageous. Help us to return to our first love. We love you. And I, and I pray, Lord, help us to be watchful and not to allow any form of compromise, the little footholds that lead to strongholds in our life. Thank you for the most beautiful church family. May we be informed, but also transformed by your word. We love you. You are beautiful. May the Lord richly bless you and keep you. May he make his beautiful face to shine upon you and be gracious to raise up his countenance and give you a bunch of shalom, a bunch of peace. The Lord is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's called us not to fear. Let's be overwhelmed with the greatness of Jesus. And, um, and let's overcome adversity and trials by the blood of the Lamb. We're secure in Christ, and we have victory over demonic attack, and we love Jesus even more than our lives. We want to shine as bright menorahs to this world. And I ask the Holy Spirit would afresh come upon you and strengthen you and bless you and your family and your friends and tomorrow's influence and opportunities. In Jesus' name, and everyone who agreed said, amen. Thanks for being here. God bless you. Proud of you guys.